VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, August the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and uh, David Williams. He's producing the program. We are absolutely looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. Well... You've heard me say this name many times in the recent past. Got to put it out there again because yesterday history was indeed made at Niagara at the Canada Summer Games. Jada Lee, 16 years old, the first female to play for a men's baseball team since the competition began in 1967. She came in in relief in the fourth inning, played an out, pardon me, an inning and a third. The first pitch she threw, the ball was scooped up. It's going to find its place in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame in St. Mary's, Ontario. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. No matter how you slice it or whatever becomes of Jayla Lee's baseball career, she has a spot in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, the team dropped a 17-7 decision to Alberta, unfortunately. But that is really something else. I would like to have heard or seen some reaction from some of the other competitors. Because we know what's happened around here. Baseball players know who Jada Lee is. And the story that was in the media last week, which was absolutely brilliant, when asked about how people react to a female playing with the boys, and she says, once I throw the ball, they all shut up. <laughs> so I'm sure there was a similar reaction as she mowed them down, those lads from Alberta yesterday. So the ball, she's going to be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And not the baseball. She may not end up there as a player. Who knows? But that's a pretty cool start to the Canada Summer Games. Totally. And another quick reminder, beginning tomorrow at St. Pat's Ballpark is the, uh, the Women's 21U National Championship Baseball Tournament. So make your way down. Tomorrow, there's the opening ceremony. It's home run derby, which is always a good laugh. So there you go. One more sporting note. It was today... In 1936, so 86 years ago, that track and field star Jesse Owens won his fourth gold medal at the Berlin Olympics, first time that had happened for any American athlete. And, of course, the Fuhrer hosting these games to show the, the dominance of his Aryan athletes over what he considered to be less than with the Africans and the Jews and Jesse Owens, much to the Fuhrer's chagrin, four gold medals in Berlin. Curiously, the, apparently the public didn't necessarily feel the same way. Upon receiving his fourth gold medal on the top step of the podium, 110,000 people in attendance in Berlin's Olympic Stadium on their feet. The Germans would flock to Jesse Owens in the street looking for his autograph, but four gold medals, the legend that is uh, Jesse Owens. Okay, let's move off to what has been the big story, I think, for most in the province. Of course, whatever you think is the biggest story, we can talk about at your convenience. But yesterday was a more manageable day to try to fight the various fires, especially the two big ones in Central. Looks like it's going to be favorable conditions again today, which is all very, very good news. The state of emergency continues, though. One of the articles that I read this morning, an encouraging headline. Now, everybody would be reacting in their own way. The different levels of stress and anxiety and worry is that people are, are reported to be prepared not panicked as the option for evacuation is still in place so we wish the firefighters and all the first responders nothing but the best of luck today and safety and now the wind shifted on the weekend there was a whiff of smoke here in town apparently it shifted again now they've smelled some of the fire smoke in cornerbrook 
so there's still still lots of work to be done and of course if you're in the region on either side of the fire on the beta spare highway and you'd like to tell us about what's going on your reaction to how everybody's doing we're happy to take the call now helicopters are doing some work to bring in some goods and people in and out the sound of Islay, the ferry so it had been in lewisport for a couple of years and now has been charged with bringing some people and goods in and out of the, uh, the areas trapped on the Canegra Peninsula and Abbott's and St. John's for more work. Not so sure the sound of ILA is really up to the task of a whole lot anymore. It does speak to the issue that the ferry system in the province is pretty much in slings. So, a good idea, but is it actually proceeding with any positive outcomes? Not yet. All right. The warnings continue. So, it's a province wide fire ban. Open fires, whether it be with wood or charcoal, for the obvious reasons. The fire department was called to 16 various fires over the weekend, and I know today with the damper conditions and the lower temperatures, many might think, well, that's it. None of those fire risks are still in play, but they are. So they're pretty much begging people to abide by the fire ban. And then over on Belle Island, they actually had a pumper truck blow up, respond to one of the fires in the wicked hot conditions. The muffler caught fire at boom. Their big pumper truck, which they use to fight the bigger blazes and some forest fires, is now out of commission. Gary Gazan, of course, the mayor of Wabana. Wabana, you're a corker. Uh, they don't know what they're going to do, but something's got to happen. What's also troubling about what's gone on on Bell Island is that they're not convinced that all the fires are from natural causes, maybe pointing the finger at some potential arson. And that's been happening on Bell Island over the years. Now, of course, it's not only Bell Island, but that has been a genuine concern voiced by the mayor and others, whether it be shed fires and garage fires, wildfires, grass fires. So they're saying it again on Bell Island. That is really unfortunate. In the world of first responders and those leaping to the uh, folks who are in need, Bravo, some of the pictures that I've seen from the seven people and the two dogs that were rescued from the Gypsy Mariner, a fishing boat from Quebec, it was taken on water rapidly, some 60 nautical miles off of St. John's. So two supply ships that are owned by Atlantic Towing, the Atlantic Griffin and the Atlantic Strike, they were on site. A Canadian Forces Hercules aircraft on site, first to arrive. Eventually, the Coast Guard Cormont was also there some 30 minutes later. All hands are safe. They tried to drop down a pump to see if they could save the vessel, but it became quickly apparent that it was a rescue mission and the Gypsy Mariner would be abandoned. They're also, the Coast Guard and others, are applauding the crew for their preparedness on board the Mariner. But, my God, so the winds were high, 30 knots, 3-meter seas. So can you imagine the training required and the courage to drop down those ropes and or to be part of those types of rescue efforts? Of course, it's very dangerous and complicated on shore, even more so possibly when we're talking about these types of rescues at sea. So bravo to all involved. We're glad everyone's safe. The hot, dry conditions... You know, this is not the first time we've, we've experienced it, and we can talk about how and why we're seeing this become as commonplace as it is, whether it be across the country last year with some 30% decrease in the yield with prolonged dry drought conditions. And in this province, leading into the farming season, farmers were talking to us and talking to their uh, fellow farmers and the province was saying the extraordinary cost of fertilizer, fuel, and feed has made for a possibly unmanageable situation on so many farms. And whether or not they'll all come out the other side of this particular growing season and or possibly next, viable, 
is a big question mark. Add in the hot, dry conditions. I heard Linda Swain interview Chris Orm, a farmer out in Central. He's been able to, based on the reservoir and the irrigation system they have in place, albeit they got a crew moving around pipes today to attend to some other fields. I don't know how many farms have had the ability to keep up with these hot, dry conditions with the required irrigation and access to water, but it's just yet another monkey wrench in an already difficult growing season. So if you're a farmer and you're in your rig this morning and you can hear us talk about your operations, fill us in with your first-hand perspective because nothing better than going right to the ground where the boots are so people can tell us what's happening. On that front, one more time. Seems like I'm kind of screaming into the void on some of these things uh, every now and then. But when the province talks about doubling food production, we all know these issues, right? And they have been in place for years. We all know about it. So people are happy enough to support big industry when it comes to, say, oil or mining or wind or something or other or aquaculture. But we've got to be cognizant of the fact that with so few farms in comparison to years and decades past, Farming is important. If we want to complement the farming operations from root vegetables all the way through cattle, how and why are we not peppering the landscape with small, medium, and large-scale uh, large greenhouses as everywhere, as far as the eye can see? It just seems to me like there's technology out there that we should be grabbing onto to ensure that we're a bit more self-sustainable when it comes to food and food reliability and security and, I guess, addressing insecurity. On that front, so the process for engagement for the newly, well, I guess the framework for the social and economic well-being plan, we're talking about just how many people in poverty are in poor health and are hungry. So dealing with income, benefits, food security, housing, the province has now announced that the engagement process has begun. It'll be in place up until the 3rd of October. We know full well that so many people in poor health and would, uh, dealing with food insecurity are living in poverty. It's not just here in this province, but it's across the country. We'll see if we can't get uh, Minister Abbott on the program in the next day or two to find out a bit more about how the process works and what the desired outcomes, a bit more about the structure of what it looks like, and we can do that. All right, most of that stemming, of course, from the work done on the health court and the social determinants of health. All right. I spoke to this one yesterday, going to do it again today. We talk about legislation and how quickly things have changed and government's inability to keep up with, say, innovation and technology and the legislation required to be in place, not to hamstring people and handcuff people and you can't say what you like. That's not, that's not the conversation. We've seen examples of updating or modernizing legislation in this province over the recent years. Just think of the Real Estate Act that was as old as the 50s, I believe. It had to be dealt with. The Elections Act of 1991 had to be dealt with. I think the School Act needs to be dealt with. Add to it the Health Professions Act. I don't know much about the physician assistants, but we did speak with Dr. Todd Young yesterday, and he has worked with physician assistants in other provinces, including Ontario. I think he was Ontario. They're primarily in action in Ontario and in Manitoba. There's some 900 physician assistants in the country. They would indeed consider this province, as per that news story yesterday, a physician assistant and her doctor husband in Manitoba would love to move closer to family in this province. She says it's not on because physician assistants are not recognized in this province as per the Health Professions Act. 
They're trained at some of the most notable universities in the country. University of Manitoba, the University of Toronto, McMaster University. They've got a lot of the skills that we need. And one of the quotes coming out of the news story was from a physician's assistant. I can take 30 or 35 patients from the waiting room and send them home without direct physician involvement. It's just one more person on the team that can see patients. We've got to get down and figure this out. The Canadian Armed Forces has been using these physician assistants for more than 40 years. 40 years. So it's not like this is some new wave, east meets west hybrid mercurial healthcare approach. No, this is real. I mean, these are real professionals. They've got the training to diagnose illness, develop and manage treatment plans, prescribe medication, perform certain procedures, first assistant surgery, all per the Canadian Association of Physician Assistants. And that requires an amendment, a change, a modernization of the Health Professions Act. And we really should find out exactly how and why. We are taking some of those approaches. You know the story. You don't need me to tell you. 600 nursing vacancies, 900 set to retire, 700 when surveyed considering either leaving the profession or going from full-time permanent to casual. Nurse practitioners, LPNs, pharmacists, social workers. We all hear these stories so often that we're all intimately familiar with it. Overnight, well, yesterday on the show, we spoke to a gentleman on the province's west coast talking about the fact that the port-to-port wind proposal has been sent back for a more comprehensive environmental assessment more details and all the different moving parts that we we talked about which all just make sense interestingly got a lot of email over the uh, course of the afternoon and last night from people completely opposed whether it be environmental sensitivities what they consider to be the blight on the landscape of 164 wind turbines noise birds you know the deal and then, of course, some people siding with Dave, saying, you know, we cannot put roadblocks in place which might sour proponents on Newfoundland and Labrador for their wind project. Um, it's hard to replicate what we have to offer, and you've heard them itemized. It's access to water, it's access to wind, it's access to crown lands, it's deep water ports, it's proximity to the market in Europe. Not everywhere is that available. Now, just from where I sit, ensuring that we get off on the right foot with wind... Now, we've got a couple of projects, one in Ramia, one up Southern Shore, small scale. But now that it looks like big players may be looking to come to town, we've got to get them to check all the boxes. That, and that includes World Energy GH2, which, of course, John Risley would be one of the notable people behind this project. It's not like people are being asked to do anything over the top. To finalize the location of the wind turbines, worker accommodations, explosive storage facilities, access roads, power lines, substations. The obvious. Management plan for the bats and the caribou and the moose and the muskrat. All the different issues that we have to consider before we green light or reject any of these projects. So the concept of scaring them off is let's not go too far to potentially exaggerate that because we've got a lot that they need to develop these wind projects, you know, the electrolysis that sees the production of green hydrogen, and there's a market for it. And even if they struggle with the market for their product, as long as there's not a nickel of tax dollars in it, well, that's the business problem. Same thing when we look at the value of the crown land. There hasn't been a final decision made as to whether we're going to lease it or sell it. You know, some projects may not survive the test of time. So leasing the land so that it reverts back to the province with all the contractual pardon me, contractual clauses that can be part of the deal. You know, there's so many questions to be asked. If you'd like to be part of asking them on this program, you know what to do. Also in the industry world. So there were 
protests here and in Ottawa regarding the release from the environmental assessment for the Beta Nord project, of course, and their proponent, Equinor. It's been a little bit more quiet here in the country about that particular project. Some people are still keeping an eye on it. They're on top of it. But on behalf of the Sierra Club of Canada, Ecojustice is still fighting the fight. We might not see it and hear it, but they're in Norway right now. And they're fighting hard to convince Equinor to do what they did in Australia with a big find, but they walked away. Now, there's some differences. There might be some overlap, but there are some distinct differences. The issue here is they're not just talking about the fact that Equinor with some 137 mitigation measures to control emissions and the pledge to be net zero by 2050. That was, I guess, what put Minister Stephen Gibo over the top for the final release of the environmental assessment. But they're looking downstream. So downstream emissions, of course, if Equinor can reach that laudable goal of net zero by 2050, we're still talking about some 80, some people say as high as 90% of emissions happen downstream after the oil is produced and it's used for whatever industrial application and or just fuel for vehicles, whatever the case would be. So they are fighting hard in Norway extremely hard and apparently they're patting themselves on the back with the successes that they're calling it from seeing Equinor walk away from their potential project in Australia so just throw it out there I'm not so sure how many people have been keeping an eye on the eventual decision business model decision and sanctioned by Equinor which who knows when that's going to happen let's talk about money for a second CRA all right tax time has come and gone but now Canada's tax agency is telling Canadians, some 9 million of us, that they owe us some $1.4 billion. So many Canadians apparently have had a check that they've lost or they've moved or they simply haven't cashed the check. The average amount for these checks is about $158, which I would take. There's people that have been owed the money by CRA dating all the way back to 1998. So now they're sending out some notifications. You can check your MyGov account to see whether or not... uh, Canada Revenue Agency owes you any money, whether it be related to Canada's child benefit, the GST HST program, the Alberta Energy Tax Refund, all of these related monies. CRA owes 9 million Canadians, thereabouts, some $1.4 billion. So talking about dealing with a backlog, they began to deal with these uncashed check issues in November of 20, or pardon me, February of 2020, have returned some $802 million, but there's still a lot of money out there. If you think you possibly are owed some money by CRA, because that's, that's a pretty good outcome. You can check your MyGov account to see if you are in that spot. And, of course, on the federal government issue, I think... Minister Bill Blair, he reached out to this show overnight looking to come on. I don't know what the update is on that front. So I think he wants to talk about forest fires and federal involvement. Fine. But also the story we talked about yesterday, and that story broke out past Friday, about the government's decision without parliamentary debate or an approval for the import of handguns to be eliminated just because there's an issue between Marco Mendocino and Melanie Jolie, where they have the ministerial authority to reject or revoke all the permits required for importing handguns. Okay, and as I said yesterday, if we don't start our focus at the American border, then all these other measures are in front of force. So we'll see if the minister is going to be on at some point here this morning. A couple of quick notes. So we learned yesterday that labor activists member of the Offshore Petroleum Board, president of the Federation of Labor for some 20 years, with the FFAW, Reg Anstey has passed. Reg was always very generous. He was on the fish pricing panel as well. Always very generous with his time on this program. I knew Reg a little bit away from the media, and he was a nice man. And, of course, he put in yeoman's years of service 
on the labor-related front. Our condolences to his friends and family. He died at the age of 76. And then yesterday, we're told, unexpectedly, Tom Hederson had a heart attack and died at the age of 68. His wife died back in 2019. Look, people love to dislike politicians. Some people love to hate politicians. He was elected some four times, served some 16 years as an MHA, a former educator and principal in Brigus. I can say without hesitation that Tom Hederson was a top quality man. He was liked across the aisle. He was pleasant, realistic, sincere. Now I know it's easy enough that every time someone throws their hat in the ring as a, a hopeful a politician and or an eventually elected official that, you know, we lobby all those same criticisms that if they don't care, they're only in it for themselves, only in it for the money, only in it for the pension. Tom Hederson was a quality fella. He just really was. Our condolences to his friends and family of well, and I think his sister-in-law is Helen Conway Ottenheimer, the now member for Harbour, Maine, and he was first elected in what was then called Harbour, Maine, Whitburn. Our condolences. Okay, we're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Let's get a tune happening before we come back and speak with you. Back in 1975, for the first time in four years, the Bee Gees back at the top of the charts with a little jive talk. And when we come back, maybe some of that, maybe some other talking. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Andrew, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. How are you, Patty? I'm doing okay, thank you. How about you? Good. Um, yesterday, uh, listening to your program there, and there was a gentleman on there talking about the shortage in the healthcare profession. Okay. And uh, actually, uh, just, just I have a question. Um, wondering if, um, yeah, when did this start, actually, the actual shortage? Uh, does anybody know? Like, I know we've been having problems for a, a number of years with regards to that. And I'm just wondering, uh, has it gotten worse since uh, COVID, or has it gotten uh, any better? Or um, Well, I mean, th- there are good questions. It's hard to know exactly how to attempt to answer that, but I think some of the wait times and the like were... They increased over COVID, given some of what the Department of Health and the Regional Health Authority said they were putting in place to protect the healthcare system from potential hospitalizations due to COVID. And consequently, the wait list grew. The numbers of people waiting for cardiac procedures or even diagnostic imaging, those lists grew and grew and grew. So that's one part of it. With the doctor shortage, it's probably a little bit more difficult to put someone's finger on when this began because we've been talking about this issue. Well, I've been in this chair about 12 years. We've been talking about shortages in healthcare for pretty much all of that. So Mm -hmm. it's gotten worse, but I think there's a variety of issues surrounding that as well. So we'd like to know, and I've asked this question on the air many times, let's just use, say, since 2018, just to pick a date. Since 2018, how many doctors have retired? How many doctors have left the province and why? How many doctors have been hired? And how many of the doctors, which are more doctors working right now in this province than ever before, how many of them actually working outside of research and academia, have a full patient roster, you know, doing what they do as a specialist? So we don't have the answers to those questions. Making a a concise answer to your question, virtually impossible, at least for me. Right. Well, um, I've worked in uh, healthcare facilities for a number of years. And I know, remember my own experience, and you know, people that I've worked with, you know, side by side. And I know that when the the you know pandemic uh, started, there uh, a little more, almost three years now, hard to believe. 
but when that started, um, you know, there was there was always, as you know, as you already said, and um, it, um, um, spoke of that there was a shortage, you know, back before the pandemic. Uh, and you know, I, I you know I've seen you know staff at the facilities I've worked at, you know, very stressed, working very hard, working on days when they're supposed to be off, um, you know, not taking vacations, you know, working uh, double tri- uh, double shifts, uh, triple shifts, uh, was just unreal. Um, so and then we you know we got hit with all this you know with the COVID and of course you know things got uh, you know rolled back like you were just saying and then we had uh, you know then we had a, a major uh, turn down with uh, a lot of employees that were there working because they you know they would not uh, you know didn't want to be vaccinated you know I, I was one of those people other people that I've known who also in the in the same facility that I worked uh, did not have that so then they were you know they were let go they were we were you know all given a, a certain time that we had to either take the uh, the vaccinations or not so then there was a another major you know a, a number uh, drop from uh, you know from that uh, you know with all the all the employees that could have been working that wasn't working we're already everybody was always stressed because the numbers were down so then that exacerbated it even more so you know I'm just wondering now is anybody asked that question uh, you know are, have any of these people uh, been hired back uh, you know since this I mean like as you know our healthcare system is suffering our you know our population is suffering people are waiting you know 12 15 hours of and an emergency, uh, you know, uh, room to to be seen by a doctor or or a nurse practitioner. So you know, you know, you ask ask yourself. Well, you know, a lot of things happened, uh, but did uh, the government exact? You know, with you know, with these mandates, you know, it didn't make it any better. Okay, I'm not going to dispute that. What I will say to it, though, is. People, now that the mandates have been dropped, I don't think there's any reason that people can't go back to work, regardless of their vaccination status. When the government reported numbers across different arenas inside government and the public service, the numbers of people that did not get vaccinated in healthcare was extremely small. I'm going to think, I'm going to try to recall the number, and if I'm wrong, someone set me straight. My recollection is that number was 3%. So what that contributed to shortages, I don't know, because inside of that portfolio, also includes people working in healthcare who aren't healthcare professionals, but they do other duties, you know, the porters and orderlies and janitorial services, housekeeping, maintenance. So I don't know how many were nurses or doctors. I don't think they've ever broken down that number, but it was around 3% in healthcare, if I remember correctly, Andrew. Do you have numbers that are different than that? Well, I, you know, from what I have, from what I have experienced, what I have seen, um, it, it, it's quite a bit more than three percent. That is what's been reported, uh, you know. But what what we've actually seen, what I've seen in the facilities I've worked in, uh, it's been like a, it's been major, um, you know. Like you know, I've been in facilities where I say, look, you know, there there was there was say uh, uh, ten uh, on staff tonight. Uh, there was supposed to be. Now we have, you know, we have six, you know. So and 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 that's on, and that's on one shift. So like you know like. We, we hear these numbers being reported all the time, but we just wonder to ourselves, is it, is it actual, you know, is it factual, right? Because, uh, you know, what, from what I've seen uh, and from what others have seen, and, and I'm still, like you were just saying a minute ago, you know, uh, with, the, with the mandates dropped now, uh, you know, some of these people, there's no reason why they couldn't get back. I, I know people, I'm one of them myself, uh, you know, who, who have our names out there, but yet we're not being called back. So, like, this is the kind of thing, like, you know, they say that the mandates are dropped and we no longer have
have to be, you know, have to worry about the mandates. We can get back to work. And I, I know people, like I said, myself as well, who are still trying to get back. So, like, I don't know, I don't know how, how that how that all interprets in, you know, in in, in the real today, you know, day to day life. But I mean, I know what's reported and what's been happening from what I have experienced and what others have, you know, colleagues and friends that I've been with. You know, I've told me the same thing. You know, they're saying one thing, but on one side of the cheek, but they're saying something else on another on the other side of the cheek. So. Fair enough. Uh, what's also interesting, maybe just to me, is that we find ourselves at a really tricky crossroads when it comes to what information we're willing or wanting to believe. So let's just say, whether it be vaccination mandates and uptake and the numbers of nurses or doctors or other professionals that weren't vaccinated and have not been called back to work or reapplied for their job, like however people want to couch it. Now that we are where we are, you know, even when we talk about adverse effects of the vaccine, what have you, I don't think we're going to get past the fact that some folks, regardless if you're for or opposed to either mandates or vaccines or uh, restrictions or masks or whatever, if you don't believe the source now, you're not going to believe it tomorrow. So when the government updates whatever it is, be adverse reactions, how many nurses didn't take a vaccination, if it doesn't suit some people's certain agenda, this is not a knock at you, Andrew. I'm just talking broad strokes. At some point, I think we have to admit to ourselves that sources of information, it's confirmation bias really rules the day versus you know being able to trust even Stats Canada. My God, someone, the Stats Canada Violence or Crime Severity Index came out last week. You would not believe the number of people who sent me emails saying they don't believe Stats Canada. We find ourselves in a funny spot. Like, if you can't believe Stats Canada, I mean, they're a pretty apolitical operation. So who do we go to? If we're not just look, looking to confirm our own bias, then who's going to trust who if it's not in their ballywick or their crosshairs today? I find that to be a really difficult spot. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I, I have to concur with what you're saying. Uh, you know, you know, with, with the general public, but from what I've experienced myself and what other people that have experienced ourselves, uh, you know, and we're just, you know, a handful of people. Uh, and and if there's a handful of people, there's a lot more going through the same thing. And you know, and, and you know, you hear it in the crosshairs of you know all the facilities, you know, throughout Newfoundland and Labrador and through Canada and wherever. Uh, you know, you see, okay, well, this one has has gone through this situation that we haven't worked in. You know, for two years, uh, somebody else is related to somebody else, and you know, they haven't worked for you know six months. You know, so like you know, you compile all that together, and then you listen to Stats Canada, and hey, everything is going great. You know, everything is wonderful. You know, everything is moving along real good. But yet, we still have a shortage. Yet, we still have all these issues. Yet, we still have so many people that still haven't you know haven't had their or, or their you know cancer treatments because of you know all all the shutdowns and uh, not enough staff. So you know, like we we hear one thing, but then we see in reality so much uh, different things going on around. So, I'll see know, if the department can give me. Uh, I'll see if the department give me uh, can provide, and Republic Health or Department of Health and Community Services can provide a detailed breakdown of vaccination uptake. And you know, I'm sure that has changed. Some people probably did choose to get vaccinated based on jobs and what have you. I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can get. Now, whether or not that's going to convince anybody, that's not really up to me. I could just get no. the information as best I can, try to confirm it as best I can. Uh, Andrew, this is a serious question, honest question. Yeah, you it is. I mean, you've got people that are that have been working for uh you know a year or two years uh people who haven't been able to pay their bills you know their, their you know their 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 houses you know they're, they're trying to pay their mortgage you know they're they're on, yeah. on the verge of losing their houses you know their, their, their whole life has completely been sw- shifted and they're still in the same boat and you know this is quite a while after you know all the mandates were dropped and they're still going through the same thing so right. you know in all reality hey hello what, what's come on let, we can't deny what we see in front of our face right? well I'm, I'm trying to have a reasonable conversation about how many people are actually being affected like that 
that and I'm sure there are several this is the last uh, pardon me and I'm not even going to ask you why I didn't get vaccinated because that conversation that's up to you you do as you see fit Um, is it a matter of being called back when the mandates were dropped and everyone was put back on a call list or is the process you reapply or put yourself back into the workforce because some people who may have walked away from healthcare could be driving a transport truck like i'm sure not everybody knows what everybody's doing so is it a matter of being called back or is the onus on others yourself included to reapply or put yourself back on the list that's an honest question i don't know yeah, well, I mean, I, I, with my own experience, I, I put my, you know, self back on the list. I, my, I've never been taken off the list. I, you know, I kept c- continually, uh, you know, contacting my employer and so on. And, and I know others have done the same. And, and yes, and as you said, uh, some people say, well, look, we're not waiting. We have to pay our mortgage, so we have to go and, uh, you know, uh, dig a ditch wherever we can find work. You know, and, and that's the reality of, of, uh, of uh, you know, our situation right now. And, you know, there's so much more that we can talk about this, but uh, but I'm sure that, you, you know, you have more you have other callers on there. But, hey, Patty, thank Thanks uh, for your time, and uh, you know, let, let, let's hope and pray that you know that coming this uh, fall and winter, that uh, you know, the shortage, uh, uh, we don't see the same, same kind of shortage because it, it's not going to get any better if that's the case. Because I mean, as, as we get into the winter months and we get into the flu season again, uh, then there's going to be all kinds of other things happening again, all over, starting all over again. So, you know, yeah, there you go. But hey, we're in the situation we're in, and uh, hopefully that it, uh, it changes soon. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks. All the best. Bye, Andrew. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Derek's uh, in the queue. wants to talk about seeing cyclists on the highway. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Derek. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Grand. How about you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, Patty, uh, I'm a second-time caller. I, I called you last year about my bike riding along the, in Cornerbrook area. Uh, I ride to from Elizabeth Street to Massey Drive, 40 trips this year, and I also ride uh, to Hammond Farm, which, where I have to go along the Trans-Canada Highway for several kilometers. But uh, from uh, it's uh, interesting that... Uh, uh, there's a four-lane highway that goes up from the, where the new hospital's at uh, to to Trans Canada, and people invariably there will move over to the second lane. And people are courteous in like the two-way road up the Massey Drive. Now, that's a 17-kilometer return trip. But when I go to Massey uh, Hammond Farm, when I get on the highway from uh, say the Riverside Drive overpass to Steadybrook. Uh, you got four-lane divided highway with a median there. And at least 50% of the traffic driving 100, 110. Do not move over even to the center line. And it's just phenomenal. I say 25% will just move slightly over, and the other remaining 25% will move over into the other lane completely and give the bike rider a break. You know? And uh, it's uh, sort of disheartening because... You know, you're driving a 4,000-pound vehicle and someone's on a 20-pound bike or whatever and could uh, break a chain or hit a pothole or do whatever. But uh, it's very threatening to that person, right? Well, it could catch a gust of wind. Yeah, <laughs> uh, get a gust of wind or, you know, any... You might see a nail or a sharp rock on the road and have a little twist or... And uh, I just don't understand it. And... Uh, I've uh, been on the highway, well, I I got almost 4,000 kilometers on my bike in four years, right? 
And when I'm on the highway, if I see a, a bike rider, uh, I'll uh, put on my signal light and move over to the other lane. And the car behind me will come right behind and not move over one inch. Stay in that lane right alongside the bike rider. You know, and that could be, you know, it could be your your daughter, your grandmother, your grandfather, whatever. And you know, it's just a. A lack of thought, I believe, you know? Well, you know, it's hard for me to put myself in one or, or another motorist's head, but I guarantee you, whether it be on a city street or especially on the highway, I'm going to do all I can to give the bicyclist a wide berth. I don't right. want to be anywhere close to if they have to make one quick move to avoid whatever, a bird or a rat or a pothole or a gust of wind, I do not want them in my grill. So I don't know why people aren't. That's the last thing I want to have happen to me is all of a sudden I'm sitting on the side of the road with my head in my hands because I've hurt or killed a pedestrian or a cyclist or someone on a school or what have you. I'm going to do whatever I can to avoid it. I don't know how people are, have the steely nerves to have their front quarter panel up against the pedals of a bike. I don't get it. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, can imagine now if you, because of the lack of moving over, when there's nothing stopping you on a four-lane highway and there's nothing in the other lane, you know, you can simply move over, you know. I mean, bikes don't have airbags, and they're, you're sort of helpless uh, to riding safely on, on that highway. And, you know, I've talked to many people who give up biking because they're scared to go on a highway, so they they limit themselves to driving in town, you know. Yeah, like you would. I mean, riding your bike around town, that's a fairly nerve-wracking experience here in the city of St. John's. But on the highway, I mean, I think it also takes the said steely nerves to ride a bike on the highway, too. Even just the whoosh of wind caused by a big half-ton or even a semi-highway transport, transport, transport truck, it must be hair-raising, to say the least. Derek, why do you do all of this cycling on the highway? Just to refresh uh, my memory? I, I leave my house on Elizabeth Street and just go uh, uh, to Massey Drive. That's where I do most of my riding. And I just simply got across the Trans-Canada, but I, on Lewin Parkway, that's just uh, the new route around the city. And uh, it's a four-lane, not a lot of traffic, and uh, you get a lot of trucks there because you got... Uh, uh, Johnson's Concrete, and you got uh, marine contractors, and with the construction of the hospital, you got a lot of big trucks, and invariably they, 100% pretty well, they'll move over to that second lane. They're very courteous, and I made a point of letting their employers know. And uh, uh, but on the Trans Canada Highway, uh, where I go occasionally, because most of the ride is from uh, on the local street in Cornerbrook, and then just got to go from one overpass to the next one to get to Steadybrook, and then you get on the local road again. Is that section of highway where they're zipping along 100, 110, 120 kilometers an hour and just don't move over, you know? Yeah, strange. Well, hopefully your message gets through. Yeah, I don't understand it because I I get a little bit stressed out when I have to pass someone doing 40 kilometers an hour who's a cyclist in St. John's because they might have to make that one quick move, you know, unbeknownst to me. So it, those things, I think, for the vast majority of the motoring public, people are really cognizant of pedestrians or I don't know what the percentage would be pedestrians and cyclists and joggers or whoever because there's no match between someone on two wheels on their bicycle and or my rig so anyway Derek hopefully your message gets through to the folks not in your air not only in your area but everywhere in the province where you may indeed come on upon someone on a scooter or a cycle this afternoon just give them a bit of space give them a wide berth yeah yeah and it's something that probably RNC or the RCMP through the public relations people just occasionally remind people to 
show a bit of courtesy to uh, these bike riders, whether you're from out of the province, making a trip across the island, or just, like I say, it could be your mother or your brother, sure. son, daughter, or just anybody. Don't make any difference. 100%. Anyway, thank you for your time. I'm just bringing it out as a word of caution. Appreciate this, Derek. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about bees and what may be the impact from the fires. But, of course, this province has one of the healthiest bee populations in the world, something that a lot of people in the bee world are trying to make sure it stays that way. We'll talk with Paul Din from Adelaide Honey right after this. Uh, welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning. Paul Din from Adelaide, Newfoundland. Honey, good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, welcome to the show. You know, it struck me the other day, I guess it was from a uh, scroll through Twitter, as bad as that could be sometimes, is we've been talking about air quality and the proximity of the fire to uh, communities, and they're all very real, and the safety of the first responders and the firefighters. But, of course, there's going to be a massive impact on wildlife. Now, rejuvenation is part of the natural cycle, but, you know, there's a lot of animals can get trapped. What do you think the impact is, whether it be air quality and or the fires are, on the bee population? The... Um well, with honeybees, uh, you know, we use smoke to calm the bees, and so smoke is not something we're really too concerned about. Um, the bees are familiar with the smoke, and they, they've evolved over time to know what fire is. They actually will uh, will consume uh, honey almost like they're packing their bags and get ready to vacate their beehive uh, should the hive catch on fire. So. They're extremely intelligent animals, but the big thing we're more thinking of is uh, is only yesterday morning. I'm kind of hearing the same things you are, and hearing you know it's getting closer to communities. And I'm saying, you know, gosh, if my beehives were threatened by fire here right now, and a lot of them are in the woods, and I said uh, I got to get them, I'd be wanting to move them. I'd be and and which is not uh, uncommon with beekeeping. You can move a beehive very easily, so. We basically sent out, uh, well, first we, we contacted the province uh, forestry lands and resources and discussed it with them. They have not heard from any beekeepers as of yet um, and let them know that we have room here. And since that, since yesterday, we've had a lot of our other beekeepers that are in our programs uh, across the province say, hey, we can take some hives, we can put them put them on our location. So, so all we've asked people to do is if they are concerned about their hives that they're threatened and to uh, you know if they want to if they want to take the time and and uh, load them onto a vehicle close them up and bring them in here they're more than welcome to do that we just want them to contact us and, and call us so we can discuss it and maybe there's someone close to them or a location they can move their beehive out of harm's way you know of course and you know i hadn't really given much thought to and i guess there's a lot of stuff swirling around in my mind but i saw someone speaking specifically to impact on wildlife because as much as a yes of course rejuvenation by fire is part of the natural cycle it also doesn't have an impact on natural migratory routes it has an impact on vegetation which would be eaten by animals it has an impact on potentially being trapped by fire and of course bees now that you're in the queue i can add that to my list of things i'm considering regarding these fires. Uh, Paul, where are we? There's been a lot of discussion about just how lucky we are. And I don't know if people realize just how fortunate we are with the healthy bee population that we have. We know beekeeping has become more and more popular as the years have gone by. But just speak to the whole issue regarding protecting the bee population, even if some people say that you can quarantine imported bees and still maintain a healthy population. Where are we? 
Well, Patty, you know, we're still very, like, there's not a day I don't wake up and pitch myself and say, wow, I can't believe we're in this situation and we're so fortunate. Um, but you you got to look at it when, when, a, when you're developing a beehive, it doesn't just like, bang, there's your beehive. It takes a year for the beekeeper to, to build these bees up to being a, what's called a production colony. So to be able to get honey and additional bees for us, I mean, uh, you know, we're over, we're we're literally overwhelmed with bees. We've we've already talked to the province that we could export bees uh, for for our own company, Adelaide's. We we are just Brent and I are literally overrun with bees, which is a good thing. And uh, but we're we're trying to basically, uh, you know, we're talking to the province now to say, listen. We, we have too many bees for our own personal use, and we've sold off some. We are selling them now. Um, so, so the, you know, we're in a very unique situation for North America. Most people, like we were in not too long ago, a few months ago, we were in Quebec and Ontario talking to beekeepers that had lost 90% of their hives to pests and disease and various things like that. So the only thing we have right now that we're concerned about is this fire currently because we don't want to see someone, you know, that's put all this work into their beehives and built them up over a full year, and now they're they're very valuable. Like, the thing is, you just can't, you know, the comb and the wax that the bees have built up inside of the beehive, that would be lost in the fire. So we need to, if at all possible, uh, if beekeepers are listening to you to to give us a call if they're concerned about their beehives and let's let's figure a way to move those beehives into a safe location now while it's safe to do so rather than when the fire is right on top of them and then they're worried about taking a risk with their own human life obviously is above above the bees in this case right now so if there's like we don't want people to wait till the last second and say oh i got to go run in and try to get my beehives because i wouldn't be safe for them to do that you know Understood. Paul, would you like to say anything else before we go to the news? Just, uh, I'd like to give out my number, Patty, if I could. Uh, sure. That would be okay. Uh, if anyone is uh, has, has a beehive, it doesn't have to be a commercial beekeeper. It could be someone who's a hobbyist, what have you. They can reach us at 709-697-2339. Got it. 697-2339. Thanks for the time this morning, Paul. All right, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, very quickly before we get to the news, if you were hoping to get down to Government House and the grounds uh, today for the scheduled Tai Chi, well, it's canceled because of uh, inclement weather, so they'll reschedule that particular Tai Chi on the lawn of Government House. Okay, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, the topic, well, that is up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, just a quick uh, observation. Uh, Willis Bay has a large tanker truck for sale, so maybe Belle Island and Willis Bay could, could have a chat. I'm not sure if it's in the it's in the yard of the Whitlow Bay Fire Department, so uh, they might might be interested in making a deal. I'm sure municipalities and MNL are trying to make sure that any available gear goes to where it's required at this point. So that's a shame what happened on Belle Isle. It was, what jumped off the page to me is not just the bumper truck that blew up, is that they're not so sure it's all natural causes, and that's troubling again to say the very least. Knowing just how hot and dry and potentially windy it could be, that someone be willing to set a fire in that island just Anyway, that's it. Uh, another quick comment. Um, 
if you look at our healthcare spending at like around three and a half billion, if you add up our personal income tax, our corporate income tax, our offshore royalties, the NLC money, the ALC money, the mining tax royalties, and tobacco, that comes to a little under three point five billion dollars. So we actually if you add up all those revenue sources, we're spending on healthcare. And more doctors, more GPs. Well, GPs, of course, order tests. They refer to specialists. They prescribe medications, which all increases costs. And um, so more of those will further increase the costs. So it really, again, another reminder to everyone that we really have to look at our lifestyle choices and and also try and find a way to utilize the limited resources we have to try and keep us all as healthy as possible. You mentioned uh, monies flowing from sale of tobacco products. I'd like to know the status of the lawsuit. I mean, because there's been different states in the United States, I think different provinces have launched lawsuits against the tobacco companies. This province said they were doing it. I don't know whatever became of it. Do you? I do not. No, no. no I know they're inter- they're intervening. I think in the one in the West BC. I think maybe, but I'm I'm not sure. I think they're looking for a precedent in one of the provinces, and then and then probably tack on. But yeah. no, I don't know. Not something I've been following. That just popped in my head when you mentioned it. So. Um, you know, again, here, here we are. Here we go again. This is what it looks like. You know, we saw it when our friends and family went through it in Fort McMurray. We saw it in BC when Lytton burnt to the ground, and and now it's staring us in our face. And we're relying on luck and Mother Nature to save us once again. Um, you know, I drove through Tiranova yesterday, and the smoke was incredible. I'm in the West Coast now, and not as bad, but I'm not down. This, I'm going heading down to the Southwest Coast for some work, and. Uh, you know, state of emergency. You know, it's amazing. It's just one emergency and crisis after another. And I guess everybody's just desensitized to it. You know, when they talk about fire breaks to protect major towns and and this heat that we've that we've experienced this summer, maybe it's an maybe it's anomaly, or maybe it's a glimpse of what our future looks like. It's it's remarkable to me that it's just so difficult to have a conversation like this because. Nobody's saying that Beta North started the fire Paradise Lake. But you don't have to ask me. All you have to do is look at the insurance companies, the oil and gas companies. They understand what's happening. They know the role that uh, they have played in the fossil fuel industry. It's I don't know what else to say about it. Nobody says that climate change started the fire. But what has been abundantly clear is climate change-related matters have led to conditions that make the place more conducive to fires and flash floods and prolonged flooding. And like, I, I'm really not sure what else to, to say about these things because, you know, someone keeps sending me uh, notes in the form of memes, which, of course, is <laughs> intellectually bankrupt, you know, about... And, and this is, you know, tongue-in-cheek kind of stuff with baiting or started the fire. And people aren't saying those types of things. You know, certainly nobody realistic is saying those types of things. But they're looking at what has been root cause and man's role. And I don't know why we're still denying it. Even if we're talking about reducing emissions to clean up air pollution. Air pollution kills in the neighborhood of 5 million people a year. So where's the downside in making the place a bit uh, easier to breathe and protecting the environment? We only get one crack at it. And it's not just about fossil fuel industries and carbon taxes and what have you. We're actually talking about things that impact you individually, no matter who you are or where you are. Uh, the ability to grow and sustain the farming industry. I mean, it's these things. Just ask the farmers from Manitoba West. Last year, the prolonged drought cost them a decrease of 30% of the yield. Do you think that they don't see what's happening year over year? Ask the people in the north of the country to talk about what they see regarding ice. You don't think they think it's real? Ask the insurance companies. They'll tell you pretty quickly that it's real. So I'm not really sure how the conversation has been derailed. I guess it's mostly because it's not about policy any longer. It's about politics. 
when people are really highly invested in something and their whole life is built around something, I mean, it's only natural that they would reject. I mean, it, that, it's human nature. And through, through history, you can see examples where people have turned, you know, done really, really stupid things because they have, were trying to avoid what was staring them in the face. You know, and, and, you know, climate change enhances the drying of organic matter, and that's what burns. And, and you know, down, down the states, west, 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 coast, west coast of the states, it's double the number of large fires. And they estimate that a one-degree increase will increase that by six times. And, every, and, and a drier climate in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, less productive agriculture, drinking water shortages, and lower hydroelectricity productivity. Like, you know, and, of course, what we're seeing now, wildfire increases. When, when Minister Bragg talked about yesterday flying over and, and seeing bogs burning, and, and we all know how wet a bog usually is. So obviously they dried out this summer enough that the forest fires could ignite the peat, which, of course, peat is a great source of, of, of uh to burn, but but not generally when it's wet, like more our bogs usually are. And to retain yeah, heat for a long time, anyway. It's yeah, neither here nor yeah, there. So you know, I, I just look at it, you know, and I talk to you know, I have I have high school students and uh, and university students, and they are not thinking about climate. They are not thinking about better choices. They literally, everyone I talk to, universally, they want a pickup truck, they want stuff, they want to skip the dishes, they want to travel, and the responsible adults need to stand up and we need to say enough and it must change and it's got to change really quickly and you know you, all you hear is denial and you hear excuses and you hear that's not possible or or you know whatever whatever we want to say but but we all have to realize we have to picture try and explain to your children and grandchildren justify every every pound of co2 you create one liter of gasoline is is five pounds of co2 and it sticks around for 200 to a thousand years Justify is they're trying to survive in a world that's that's no longer functions properly, and, that, and that's where we're heading. Where we're heading. It's crazy. Uh, would you like to offer anything else, Tom, before we take another call this morning? Yeah, I want to touch. I mean, I want to touch on the city of St. John's raises, and and I just want to, you know, it, I'm looking at how what Mount Pearl's going through. I know they're not fighting over compensation, but they're trying to manage their city in a responsible, long-term way. And here we got it. We got you know, it's difficult to know exactly how much we spend on payroll, but the raises that are announced between 14.3 and 14.8 million dollars is what the outcome is going to be every year once we get to the 11%. And you know, and that flows right up through right up through all the managers, the nine managers who sit at, at a council meeting in the minutes. Um, they cost us around 1.5 million. So they're going to make an extra 175, dollars when they get their raises. And these are the people who are recommending the raises. When you looked at the budget needing to go up because it was supposedly to cover increased costs last year well it's pretty obvious that part of those increased costs they were they were hedging their bets not even hedging it it was probably a foregone conclusion that these raises were going to be part of that and all the people on fixed income all the people experience higher interest rates they're all going to be hit with this too and these are not employees who are on the food banks you know they're not it's not where we are and i don't know how we roll it back to the point where we have a sustainable municipal structure it's not just the city of st john's but but you know the best paid employees in the province public servants work for the city and you can look and see how they move from provincial to municipal and 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 we got it again where's the leadership where's the municipal leadership where's the people who are worrying about 10 years out five years out i don't know where they are i'm not sure where they are but but i i, I call on all all everybody in leadership to realize where we're going to be and where we're going and and do be, be courageous and be honest and be straight and i take care of everyone appreciate take the care. time tom thanks yeah bye
Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number three. Roz, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, I'm calling about the working poor mm-hmm. again today. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 the priority is, like I said, uh, I was part of the working poor and so was my husband. And everything we fought for with our union has been gradually rolled back. Like, People out there uh, think because someone's getting a, a little bit of a raise or anything, uh, they're not entitled to it. But um, I, I was just listening to the guy talking about the municipal workers. I mean, they are garbage men. They collect their garbage. They do, do things. But all the politicians, you don't see them rolling back themselves. They manage to get be able to get two pensions. They probably finished work, got a pension there. Now they're getting another pension from, from government. No one is picking up on the, what the poor are going through. And it really boils me when I hear, oh, my God, we can't give them a raise. We can't give them anything because... They're trying to create in Mount Pearl a two-tier system that anyone being pulled, brought in is going to get less less than someone already working there. Now, how do you consider that fair? You know, I don't know what what people are thinking. Everyone deserves, even a garbage man deserves a raise. He he deserves a living. We deserve a living. I chose to be a factory worker because I didn't want to work for minimum wage down on Water Street. And it was hard work. And my husband put in a lifetime of hard work. We fought for pensions, but we never, we never got into them early enough. And my husband worked for a grocery store. And now the unions are gone out of the grocery store. The meaning's so-called union up there is a laugh. It's a joke. They're paying pittance because they hire everyone part-time. Everyone is hired on a part-time system. Where? And this is what's creating. They're creating a two-tier system so the poor can't get ahead. And it really, really makes me sick listening to people saying how well a grocery worker is doing or anyone else is doing. I don't know if I've even heard much in the way of that. I have heard repeatedly about some of the profits at the corporate level as opposed to someone who's restocking the uh, shelves, making whatever money they're making. Uh, That's more of the conversation I've heard regarding the grocery chains because while the politicians are squabbling back and forth, all based on party agenda and uh, stoking the fire of their base, we've kind of ignored the fact that, yeah, I mean, the supply chain issues, they're real. But profitability is way up. I don't know why that's a bad thing to say. I mean, I don't. profit's not a bad word, but it's part of the equation. But no, we're going to reject that or just going to ignore that, apparently. Uh, anyway, Roz, I'll let you have the final thoughts. You go ahead. Yes, Patty. I, I, you know, like I said, one time we were a caring society. But, uh, you know, and it, it is still a caring society. But there are people out there, because someone is getting a little bit more than another person, they begrudge it to that person. It, you know, uh, I wish they start thinking about it, you know. And, you know, 
anyone working uh, for a minimum wage, now, they, they deserve to live also. You know, they're always put down. Uh, the government can never find money for them, but they can find it for buildings, and they can find it for when the Queen comes down to visit or the Queen's friends come down. They can find money for everything but the working poor. And that's my point, where Petty. I'm so angry today, you know, just listening to people talking about, oh, my God, the, 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 the workers in, in, working in the city of Mount Pearl, they don't deserve this. And they do deserve a living wage just like the rest of you. Yeah, I'm not so sure we're talking about living wage with some of these union negotiations, but uh, I understand the point, Roz. I appreciate your time. Take good care of yourself. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, say good morning to the PC member for exploits. That's Playman Forsey. Playman, you're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Morning to you. Good morning. First of all, Petty, I'd like to... Uh uh, pass along our condolences, of course, to the uh, family of the late Tom Ederson. Uh, I have met uh, Tom on a couple of occasions, actually, and found him a re- remarkable individual. I knew Tom a little bit, away from politics, away from media, and like I said off the top of the show, people, and I got a couple of emails saying, boy, you're sucking up to the politicians, which is just bloody nonsense. I mean, Tom Hederson, uh, regardless of what you think about people who run for office, get elected to office, serve as cabinet ministers in one party or another, Tom was genuinely a good fella. And I don't know why I have to put up with people telling me that that's inappropriate to say, because politicians, as much as people don't want to hear it, are also uh, human beings. Some politicians are good people, some aren't. I mean, that's just nature of the beast. But Tom was one of the good ones. He just simply was. He was a nice, pleasant man. He was, Petty. Um, but, Petty, I'd like to talk about the fires, certainly just continuing here in Central Newfoundland again this morning. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the fires did, did increase overnight, uh, even though we're, uh, we're getting some much-needed needed rain here this morning. The uh, smoke is still heavy in that area, so it's... Uh, so every, everything is still on alert in regards to uh, the notices and evacuations to... Uh, to 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 the towns of Bishop Falls, Botwood, uh, Grand Falls, Windsor, and uh, you know we'd just like to have everybody to uh, you know take part and pay attention to all the uh, all the notices and uh, announcements that are that are being out there uh, for uh, crews. Are, I was talking to Forestry yesterday and again this morning. Yesterday they did have a chance with all the extra resources to get in on those, especially the two big fires at uh, on Bates Bear Highway and Paradise Lake to really give that a good. Uh, a good drench of water with the bombers yesterday. So hopefully, even though it did increase, hopefully we're making some great headway. So are you out in the area right now? I'm in Bishop Falls, yes. So what have, what have we seen? Well, like, what's the day like? Right here in St. John's, it's gray, overcast, drizzly, kind of cooled off. It's probably in the mid-teens. What are you experiencing today? We've got those type of temperatures too, Patty. It's it's, it's rain. Uh, we're expecting about 10, 15 millimeters, of course. It's, it's a damp day. Temperatures are down. So, uh, you know, it, it's probably uh, what we need to, to be fighting those fires. And that's where now the smoke seems to be uh, alleviated a bit in regards to coming into towns this way. So uh, we got we got some good conditions probably to be attacking that fire today. That's good news. I, I was encouraged. Now, of course, they didn't interview every single person in Grand Falls, Windsor, or Bishop's Falls, or anywhere else. But people seem to understand what's happening. They're being prepared if they choose to or are asked to evacuate, as opposed to being panicked. That's really encouraging. Now, I'm sure there's people on the other side of the fire down the Conegra Peninsula probably feel a little bit different than that. But you know, that's I think an important and encouraging message to put out 
out there. Hopefully, whether it be from uh, the sea and hopefully the Sound of Islay can get out of St. John's and get out there to do what it's intended to do with the passage of goods and people. But as long as the plans are in place and the lines of communication are open, hopefully that will remain to be the the emotion expressed by most is that they're prepared and at this moment in time not panicky even though i've heard some email from some emailers saying that they're pretty stressed out about it and i can only imagine because it's one thing to be cut off based on whether it be the highway crumbling in a storm but when the fire's on top of it and you can smell it and see it i'm sure it's very unsettling it is patty it's a big concern i'm sure it's a big concern to the uh to the uh, South Coast people, you know, they, they've been cut off for, an, uh, for yep. a few days now. And uh, in a conversation again with Forestry this morning, they are monitoring that area right now. Um, they've got crews gone down there, and hopefully, just hopefully, they may may get that open road open today, just hopefully. Um, so it's, uh, regards to that, uh, regard, do you know the towns have, have got their plans in place? They've, uh, they've cooperated together. Everyone's in communication. I've had some conversations with the mayors of both the, of the three towns here in, uh, here in Central, of course, and, and they are ready and they got the teams on alert and uh, things are seem to be working well. So with communications open and everybody, like you say, communications open, everybody working together, advisories out there, uh, we can get through this together. Appreciate the time, Playman. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Playman Forsey. He's the PC member for Exploits. Let's go to line four. Simeon, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm calling uh, on uh, one of our roads here in Natwashish. Uh, in uh, Gooseby, I'm sorry. Um, with... Uh, the condition road is really bad from uh, from northwest Shehajish to Goose Bay, and it's really really deteriorating road and it's very bouncy and very dangerous sometimes. And and I noticed about five ambulances went up down down the river yesterday, so it's really bouncing and it's getting getting to the point where I think public safety needs uh, needs to be considered here. And I realized the uh, the southern Labrador. Coast is all done very fast, and a lot of kilometers being covered, and which is really good. And uh, I'm proud of the uh, the MHA uh, MP uh, Yvonne Jones and uh, MHA uh, Lisa Dempsey what they're doing up there the, the district. But certainly, like uh, to see some uh, movements in 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 Lake Mel area for that road because it's it's gotten to the, it's, it's nobody has really bringing up the issue and what's but the last time I heard from uh, from the very reliable source, uh, it's, it was going to be fixed this summer, but eventually uh, it doesn't seem to, it's going to happen. But uh, but certainly like to uh, one of the tra- uh, Minister of Transportation uh, ministers, provincial minister, should should at least acknowledge and let the residents and let the communities know that that is going to be taken care of the problem and. Uh, all that stuff because of the of the safety reasons because somebody's going to get killed in that road. Uh, yeah, I saw some of the pictures that have been. I mean, I get pictures from every part of the province, whether it be the road in Terranova, La Sea, down to Harbour Breton, and mm-hmm. or the pictures that you sent along this morning. Mm-hmm. I think some of the arguments that people make about you know, beating up my uh, wheels and rims and suspension and stuff, that's fair, and that mm-hmm. co- comes out of your pocketbook. But some yeah. of the roads that we see, the deplorable conditions, is absolutely, first and foremost, a safety matter. Yeah, it is, and it is, and I, and I, I totally agree with you on the. Uh, on the vehicle damages uh, purposes is also uh, it's it's I mean it's very expensive now these days the parts are very expensive and placing uh, 
maintaining uh, your vehicle for uh, insurance purposes and also the safety reasons. And, and that's, I mean, that's a lot uh, to consider. But when you have a road like this, it's that's, that's not alleviating any any problem, easing any problem with uh, with the uh, with the owners, uh, more, uh, with the vehicle, people who own the vehicles. And uh, I mean that's that's a very fair, but I think it it needs to be done. Somebody has to start making noise. But one of the things, I, if I was the band chief for for any political uh, position, I, if I was holding one of the things, I would probably do and and and, and demand some some work, or halt the projects, Boise uh, Bay, Wakala Falls, until until they improve the uh, until uh, they improve the roads uh, in Labrador because. You know they're making a good chunk of money out of what uh, Falls, and Mosquito Falls is going to be uh, be generating a lot of revenue to to uh, the coffers and also the province, the provincial government, and also uh, you know, <laughs> everything involved. But it's time I think we we have to think realistically, and we have to be proactive rather than being uh, reactive. Yeah, I I think between the mining sector and other opportunities, and mining is, I think, well, there's huge opportunities and upside here in the province. Muskrat Falls generating a revenue, not so sure about that one, but I get the point, Simeon. Uh, would you like to say anything else while you're on the show this morning? Uh, yeah, the other thing that I want to mention, Patty, is that the uh, we're ho- uh, now the Washington she's hosting uh, Elders Gathering. This is the 28th uh, uh, 28th gathering now, I think, within the province of Quebec and also within the province of Newfoundland, Labrador. But uh, Nato, she's hosting a big event. And I have, think I have sent you the programming and the schedule to your open line. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I'd have to have a look. Yeah, and uh, very interesting. And uh, I think all the elders from Quebec and Labrador are gathering, and, you know, from Laramaine, Wonemeshibu, uh, Washat, Manutanam. Ekwanjit, uh, Besamit, all, all the and Kawajigmat, uh, Lakshan. I'm not really sure yet, but I'm, I'm coordinating this uh, little uh, project. So it, everything just seems to be going really well. But uh, I just want to main uh, uh, remind people that there will be COVID tests be done, and it's going to be monitored. It's going to be enforced uh, very enforced, uh, be enforced the, the regulations. For, for somebody, uh, for everybody's public uh, safety, and I'm uh, really honored to to be part of it. And that uh, we're First Nation hired me as, a, as their coordinator, and it's going to be a really, really nice gathering. And we're also going to take the elders to Old Davis Inlet, Old Trading uh, Post, Hudson Bay, and Davis Inlet itself, and and revisiting the the history of the Mushuainu people, and and, and share the. Uh, Share the stories from to the Quebec uh, elders and also uh, whoever is involved. I appreciate the time this morning, Simeon. I'll have a look for the email. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Uh, I'll get this one before we go to the break. Morning. Uh, Ralph on line one, you're on the air. Yes, sir. Uh, I picked up a set of keys. It's one key uh, with two remotes. Okay. Where'd you find it? I think it belongs to a Dodge Ram. Because I was on my way up to Foodland there was Sunday. And I thought it was a hole in the road at first until I got up, you know. And here was the keys 
with the two remotes. Okay, so it's one key, two remotes. You think it's to a Dodge Ram. Where did you find them? Uh, just there by Gallus Cove Pan on the road. Okay, so you hold on to them. Listen, you want to give us your number, Ralph? Yes, sir. Go ahead. 437. Yeah. 1796. 1796. Got it. Or they can call me on my cell. Fire away. What is it? 351. Yep. 3224. So 437-1796 at home or 351-3224 on your mobile phone. Thanks for this. Appreciate it, Ralph. Okay. Thank you, and have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. So there by Gallows called Pond, one key, two remotes, likely a Dodge Ram. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Diane is in the queue. What's on her mind? Let's find out. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Diane, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How are you, Diane? I'm not doing very well. What's happening? Uh, I'm in an awful situation. I'm 70 years old, with a lot of cardiac issues. Last year, I had to call an ambulance 15 times in one year. That's $115 a pop, which is here and there. Not what I really called for. Of course, the health system is not the greatest, greatest to go in with really high heart rate, over 200, and they get it down as quickly as possible and give you this drug called amniridazole and give it to you every five or ten minutes instead of waiting every half hour so they can get it down quick and get get you out through the door. And, of course, needless to say, I'd only be home a couple of days, and then, of course, I have to call 911 again, another heart attack. But anyway, I spent a year in hospital and, out, you know, in and out, in and out. You can imagine, I didn't have any time home. Only a couple of days here and there. And the whole thing about it, while I was that sick, I wasn't paying any attention to my bills. And hence, I do have a high light bill, $2,400 to be exact. I paid so much, of course. Because, I mean, it's $400 a month, but uh, I, I can't catch up. You know, I went so far behind. And late bill, any bills, weren't, they just weren't on my... I was just too sick to even think about it. I lived by myself, and I didn't have sense enough. I, wasn't, I never even thought of it to get my older son, who doesn't live with me, to uh, pay for, look out for the bills. I did have another son who was an addict, and he had access to my council. Money for the bills went. Not for not for the light bills or anything like that, but the drugs. But so here I am now, Patty. I got an, a letter from Light and Power saying that they want all of them $1,500 by Thursday. And if not, they're going to come in and turn off all the electricity to the house, which means I want to be able to get a cup of tea. 
I think it's pretty harsh for a big corporation. There's no, they don't give you any compassion or anything. You know, it's all hot and dry. And that's the predicament I'm in. Now, I understand with the issues with complicated health matters. So how many months' worth of power bills adds up to $1,500 for you? Four. Four bills. Have you actually had the opportunity? Because, you know, you might get a letter from Newfoundland Power telling you what's going to happen. Have you taken... I've got a letter saying they're going to connect me, disconnect me on Friday. Yeah, I was just about to continue that thought to say, uh, you can get the letter. Have you taken the time to speak with someone at Newfoundland Power? I did, just before I called you. And they said there's no wiggle room too bad. Come the deadline on the letter, that's it, you're out of luck. Yeah, I got a head, I, if I got $1,400 for a week. And that's it. They can't do anything any more than that. Hmm. It's a tough, uh, oh. tough spot to find yourself in because $1,400 of most people listening to the show this morning probably wouldn't be able to come up with $1,400 to pay a bill. But what did you say the deadline was, Diane? Friday. It's on Friday. And Friday. So that's terrible. And I'm, I'm going to make a quick call on the heels because I've got three or four people in your situation with uh, issues pertaining to Newfoundland Power and another couple of bills that's looming over their head. Uh, and how is your health today? My health is not that good. I've got cardiac problems. I can't even walk the stairs, Patty. And uh, I, have, I have to stop and hold on the rail and on taking deep breaths then or if I go for a walk uh, I'll, I'll just go for a walk on the level I won't go up a hill I just can't do it I'll, I'll end up having to sit sit, up, sit down or something and I, I just I know my body now at 70 years old I suppose if I don't know now I never will but uh, I do have cardiac issues and like I said I just I don't go down in the basement unless I got to go down for laundry. What I do is stand at the top of the stairs and throw my stuff down, and then when I get gets enough to wash, I go down and wash it, right? Diane, if anyone connects with me to say they, they can offer you something, some assistance, some help, we have your number, and we'll give you a call back. Um, would you like to say anything else this morning while we have you on the line? Uh, I just hope there's... I know there are a lot of good people out there, Patty. There are. Uh, just bad out there, but there's a lot of good people out there, and I hope somebody is listening and is kind enough to help me out. I really appreciate it. If they connect with I us, Diane. I can't imagine not being able to boil the kettle. No, I understand. Of course I understand. If anyone connects with us, we'll be sure to connect with you, I promise. Yeah, and I don't have a phone, so the phone number you've got there oh. is my next-door neighbors. Okay, well, hopefully they'll be the uh, just, middle man for us. I'll just out to Tracy. She, she's working from home. Okay. Tracy? Oh, you can do it after I we say goodbye. It's over here for anybody who calls. Oh, yeah, that's okay. Okay. Um, but now, pa uh, Patty, you've got the number there on the phone? I do. I have it. Uh, no, he's got it there on the phone. Okay, thanks, no Tracy. Uh, thanks, Patty. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you take good care. Okay, thank okay, you. Okay, Diane, bye you're bye. welcome. Bye-bye.
Uh, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, we're talking about the O'Brien family farm and the Irish language. We actually had a talk, a little bit of discussion around the language Irish and Scots Gaelic and Manx and Galwegian and the rest of it one day last week. And then we're going to talk about the new engagement process regarding the launch of the Social and Economic Wellbeing Plan. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti. He's the Minister of Children, Seniors and Social Development. That's John Abbott. Good morning, Minister Abbott. You're on the air. Patty, and how are you? Not too bad, sir. How about you? Good. Look, Patty, if I may, I'd like first to commend the forest firefighting crews and volunteers in central Newfoundland. I'm, I'm sure we all agree that the communities and people of central Newfoundland and on the Conagra Peninsula are in good ha- hands. And I just want to make sure for those involved, I want to thank them for their selfless service and certainly want them to stay safe through this very, very difficult period. Certainly, and hopefully the reprieve with the more manageable weather is going to go a long way today and in the days to come. So it's an ongoing developing situation that I'm sure a lot of people in the province are thinking about. Uh, Minister Abbott, yesterday yourself and Minister Hogan made an announcement about the engagement process for the launch of the Social Economic Wellbeing Plan, basically dealing with some of the recommendations from the Health Accord and the Social Determinants of Health and numbers of people in poverty and attempts to prevent poverty. How's the engagement process going to work? Because on some things, government's fully reliant, for instance, on Engage NL, the website. How's it going to work here? Because some of the people that you need to hear from might not have access to Engage NL. No, thank you, Patty, and a fair uh, observation. The Premier has asked me when I took on this uh, portfolio to look at the poverty reduction strategy that was in place and to really rejuvenate that. And uh, as the health accord process was unfolding, then to tie the the two uh, two consultations and the findings together. So what we've uh, decided, and working with staff internally and uh, folks with the health accord uh, process, that we now have gone out with our consultation uh, plan. And what we will be doing is both doing online consultations, and we have a a consultation guide, a discussion guide there to help uh, formulate the people's uh, opinions and views. Uh, We will be holding uh, in-person meetings and sessions with people, particularly those with uh, lived experience who may be on income support now in our housing uh, units, those kinds of uh, situations and we will reach out to them. We'll also be reaching out to the uh, community agencies right across the province who are active in the social policy field and who have uh, in many cases are doing direct delivery as well. So we want to make sure we cover as uh, as many facets of uh, the community that we can uh, through this over the next couple of months. You know, I ask people like Josh me about the number one or what top three solutions to food insecurity and to a man, to a woman, a lot of leaders in that arena will say, it's more money in your hand. Now, give me, let me try to ask this question as appropriately as possible. We also, even when we talk about Canada Child Tax Benefit or what have you, inside the social determinants of health, we also understand the overall well-being and the health of people who are living in poverty. There's also some concerns, and this is not stigmatization that I'm offering, is involvement or engagement with the criminal justice system. How do you ensure that the programs have the 
the harm reduction policies at the same time so that we make positive steps forward as opposed to piecemeal cross our fingers hope for the best. I hope that question makes sense the way it does in my mind. Well, I think you've hit down the core of what we're trying to achieve here, which is that this is to be an all-encompassing, comprehensive plan, so not just taking one or two aspects. We want to look at the whole uh, context of, as uh, Sister Elizabeth Davis and Dr. Pat Parfrey mentioned, uh, outlined in the Health Accord, which is the social determinants of health. We got to see how people are uh, engaging in child, the child care uh, system, how they're engaging with the education system, how they're engaging with our housing systems, uh, so that we make sure we can cover uh, really all facets of, uh, of life, uh, particularly for those who are on low incomes, who have mental health issues, who have uh, food security issues. So we're trying to bring all those uh, pieces together. There's no doubt at the end of this, uh, obviously there's gaps in our current service delivery system. Uh, there's going to be more resources going to be required, at least with this approach and the plan coming out of this, we'll know where we should make those investments to give us the best uh, result for the people that we are really trying to support and help so that we li literally lift all boats up uh, uh, right across uh, across the province. So that's really the aim here. It's ambitious, but we think based on the work that's already been done, uh, the knowledge that's out there, and all the research that's gone on nationally and internationally and certainly locally, that uh, we can pull all those uh, pieces together uh, over the next uh, several months. How do we ensure that building on the framework, you know, because you, you talked about being comprehensive and, you know, all the programs that need to work at the same time for this to have the positive outcomes required. How do you break down the engagement process to deal with seniors, for instance, to deal with children? Is it a matter of involving other departments, whether it be Health and Community Services, the Department of Education, the Child and Youth Advocate, the Seniors Advocate? What? How do you break it down? Because not all approaches will equal dealing with a single mother and their three children and or a family living in poverty or a single senior or, or a child who's in the system. How do you break it down? Because it becomes quite complicated when you look at different life circumstances. Well, that's very true. And life is complicated and uh, individuals will find themselves in very difficult uh, and challenging situations. Uh, but we have, uh, and certainly if you talk to uh, those who work on the front lines, whether it's the social worker, the community nurse, uh, the teacher, uh, so we'll be engaging all, all aspects. They, they have really see this day in and day out and where the gaps are. And really that's one of the things I'm particularly interested that we get to the core of, of, of that, identify those gaps, and then uh, re, uh, redesign uh, many of our, our services. And the critical component here is going to be early intervention. As we see uh, situations arise that we can support families, uh, children in care, particularly children coming out of care, how we support them so that they can be successful in life. And uh, we also obviously want to working with our education and health systems to make sure we got the prevention uh, elements right as well. And again, the health accord speaks to that in very broad, broad terms. The challenge now is how do we break that down and come up with really actionable items that are going to have a, a meaningful impact on, on the lives of thousands of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. How carefully do you have to dovetail with the federal government? Because they talk about this kind of child tax benefit and what that's meant for bringing, or bringing children out of poverty even though they've kind of changed what that means over the years. And you're also the minister responsible for the status of persons with disabilities. There has been a tabled piece of legislation to create a new disabilities benefit. 
how does this work happen? Because sometimes, you know, there might be a relationship between the province and the federal government on these fronts, but when they're doing their thing in the House of Commons and we're doing our thing in the House of Assembly, how do you make sure that every dovetailed piece of overlap or synergy is achieved in this eventual policy? Because, again, we might consider doing something for someone who's disabled, who's 30% more likely to live in poverty, underemployed, unemployed. How do you make sure those federal programs work with what you create? Well, we have a pretty good handle on many of the, the federal programs that are in place. So our challenge for us now is to uh, incorporate those programs into uh, our, our design going forward. As you mentioned about the f- f- uh, federal proposal for disability benefits, so we know that that is coming, so we can build that in and uh, and and work around that. Another aspect of this, which is uh, which I suspect will definitely come up in the consultations, is around the whole idea of basic income and how we make, need to make sure we can raise uh, where we need to uh, incomes in the province. We've just increased the, the minimum wage. That's going to have a significant impact. Uh, we have all the federal benefits that are having an impact. Uh, through our uh, plan in March to deal with the cost of living, that's having a positive impact. So we got to go through uh, where else we need to to make the investments to to raise income so that people have a livable uh, wage or an income so that they can afford things on the cost of living side of the equation, but also on the service side, whether it's our dental program, our housing program, our home repair programs, to make sure they're going to be equally effective uh, going forward so that uh, we can help as many uh, and people right across the province, particularly seniors, that's again because I have that responsibility, so we'll be able to incorporate those uh, those aspects into our uh, final plan. We don't always get consensus in the House of Assembly, but all 40 members voted in uh, in favor of examining or evaluating what basic income might look like. I mean, is there a committee struck? I can't remember at this moment. Is there a formal committee struck? Is there any move on that front? Has there been an engagement process structured? Where are we? Uh, what uh, what we, I think we've decided to do is we were waiting for the health accord and our final report uh, and that is now submitted. Uh, I know we're doing some work internally on the concepts around uh, basic income and what are the opportunities and costs obviously and then uh, the committee I suspect will probably be struck when the house reconvenes uh, this fall. Uh, last one. You're also the minister responsible for the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. We know about the housing crunch and rental units here in the uh, the, the metro region, different uh, set of circumstances in Labrador, for instance, but there was a significant number of units owned and operated and maintained by the housing corporation that were vacant due to be, I guess, some repairs needed to be done or what have you. How quickly can we deal with the backlog because that factors into some of the rental crunch, whether it be here on metro or housing issues in Labrador? The uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation has certainly got the mandate uh, and and the funding to make sure all our units are ready and for for rental. So we've put significant money in the budget this year uh, to to do that. We're working with the City of St. John's to make sure that any of the units they have right now are are vacant, that they can also make those available uh, to the market. At the same time, we have various uh, plans in place now to start some new construction, working with with the federal government that will ease some of the pressure. Obviously, it's going to take a year to two to get some of those projects in place. Uh, we're working, obviously, with the gathering place to expand, expand the services they are offering there. So that will all help. And at the same time, we are in conversations with uh, various uh, private sector developers to see how they can avail of federal funding and financing to start some new construction, uh, whether it's in Northeast Avalon, out in central Newfoundland, or, or up in Labrador. So there's a lot happening. It's unfortunately we're in a, a crunch right now because there are the 
supply is uh, very, very limited. We've lost some time because of COVID, uh, but now we have to, to make that up as quickly as possible. Do you have timelines on your desk for accountability purposes about, okay, more money in the budget doesn't necessarily mean anybody drives a nail. So do you have timelines in front of the housing corp to say, okay, here's the money, here's the deadlines, 60, 60 empty units needs to be 40 by the end of November or whatever. Do you have those types of timelines? Well, we, when we approve the budget, we built in those timelines, what we what we can fund and actually deliver this year, this year and next year. And uh, one of the challenges, of course, we're having is making sure we can line up uh, private contractors. Believe it or not, they're, they are very, very busy. So that's uh, that's one of the immediate challenges. But we, we are uh, going to continue to meet uh, the, de- uh, the budget deadlines and parameters that uh, we have in front of us. And we'll obviously be putting in more money next year. So this will be an ongoing program. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Patty, and all the best to you and your listeners. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's uh, John Abbott. He's the minister responsible for children, seniors, social development. We touched on another couple of his portfolio mandates inside status of persons with disabilities and the housing corporation. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Join us on line number five is the province's consumer advocate, Dennis Brown. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Now, I don't really know how to start this wind-related conversation in your office, but of course, when you have a wind project that's scheduled to uh, create green hydrogen for export versus a uh, plan maybe to uh, energize a mine and maybe sell some money, uh, some power back to the grid, what's your involvement in some of these proposals regarding wind? Uh, I have no involvement. And that's a question that people wanted me to ask you because I couldn't have foreseen what your involvement was unless it was a wind farm to power up Valentine Lake and selling and selling power back to the grid. Yes, uh, this is not a uh, grid situation. Uh, the proponents of the wind farms plan to uh, produce hydrogen for export. So uh, they're not asking or seeking to use the grid. If it was a grid situation, that would be different. So what the what their proposal is, uh, it's all done by private enterprise. Um, there's no public money going into it. Um, royalties will eventually accrue to the province uh, should this come to fruition. So, um, and it's very much in its infancy. There has been uh, no environmental studies completed. Uh, Indeed, they have no land. I assume they're looking for uh, a grant of crown land to purchase crown land at some point. So this is very preliminary. Uh, Their plan is to export uh, hydrogen, um, and of course it's all new technology. Hydrogen can be converted to ammonia for shipment in in, uh, cylinders. Uh, the markets they're looking for are probably European, probably German markets. Um, if they can um, get the uh, the transport uh, up and working to uh, to transport uh, that much uh, uh, hydrogen uh, for use uh, in in Europe. Let's speak in general terms because eventually there might be a commercial or an industrial wind-related project, you know, to power up their operations and then an excess power, what we call net metering, maybe to come back to the grid. You know, what would be your, I don't want to say warning, but your thoughts that the government might need or want to consider regarding the fact that at some point if they get all the 
bugaboos figured out with Muskrat Falls, we won't be needing the power unless it's some sort of backup power and or to replace Hollywood. But every bit of additional power or any decrease in the amount of Muskrat power I consume means an increase in my rate potentially. So what's your message to the government when considering wind that may indeed have implications with the grid? Yes, we don't need it from an electric perspective. Muskrat Falls is quite sufficient for the province's needs once we get Muskrat Falls on working and fully commissioned. So, and then there should be a sufficient uh, leftover to, uh, to export. And that's after we look at our obligations to, uh, to Nova Scotia. And uh, if you look at what the proponents are doing of this for this hydrogen wind farm, if I could use that term, uh, they're out to produce uh, about uh, 3,000 upward megawatts. How does that compare? Well, Muskrat Falls has about 700 megawatts, Churchill Falls uh, 5,400. Uh, the two wind farms I think we have on the island produce about 27 megawatts each. So uh, they're up there. They're looking in the vicinity of over uh, 3,000 megawatts. So it will be a huge facility. Uh, what do you know about what's happening in Ramia with the wind? Because initially I think that was a pilot project that tests to deal with hydrogen storage, what have you. Then I was, I was told at one point that the turbines had stopped spinning. What's happening? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> uh, in uh, Ramia, it's my understanding, the last time I checked it out, and that was uh, several months ago, uh, they were uh, uh, looking at it again. Uh, Ramia was a, um, an experiment of some sort. It was uh, done when the, uh, the Nelcor crowd were in charge, and... Uh, I'm not certain if the plans are to try to get it up and running, but uh, certainly uh, uh, there there will be wind capacity there. Yeah, and of course, if we're talking about uh, opportunities for wind, I don't know where it factors into not replacing the burnt-down diesel generation, I think, in Charlottetown with another diesel generator. So I don't know who has a plan on that front. Uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning? That is because we basically invited you on because people wanted me to confirm with you that the current proposals have nothing to do with our grid. Yes, and uh, it's questionable whether the Public Utilities Board has any authority. If this uh, wind farm can come under the Act as a definition of a public utility, uh, then the PUB would have some authority over it. But uh, that's doubtful if they're producing this uh, purely for export. If they attempt to get internal by... uh, by uh, producing some electricity for uh, uh, large industrial use, that would be different. Uh, the PUB would certainly be involved at that point. Sure. Appreciate the time this morning, Dennis. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. As Dennis Brown, the province's consumer advocate. We appreciate Dr. Francis Scully's patience. When we come back, O'Brien's family farm and a little Irish language. Don't go away. Now, welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, Dr. Francis Scully, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Uh, Hello. Hello. Yes, and uh, yes, good wishes to everybody who's speaking and to that uh, lady who got the horrible bill. I hope she can be helped. That's not good for her heart. Yep. So so I thought maybe what I would do is just start with uh, one of my... uh, favorite blessings and I'll if you like read it in English and then in Irish would that be okay sure go ahead 
Okay, it's Banach Erhach, which means blessings on everyone. So in English, it's not more generous the growing blades of grass, nor the grains of sands on the shore, nor the dewdrops on the pasture. Be the blessings of the King of Grace on every soul that was, that will be, or that is. So in Irish, that's in one of the dialects, it's Naratuiga Fair Ekfos, no Ganya Vasha, no Druch Dervon, no Namanachti, Orin, Ngoros, Ergach Anamadi, Aveg, no Ata. It's, uh, I don't know how many people listen to the program this morning will understand a single word of Irish. I think there's probably a couple. Uh, and so the Irish blessings, you know, they were very much commonplace in and around our family growing up. Uh, and, of course, every time we ever went to a family celebration of any kind, inevitably someone would be offering up an Irish blessing. So not, uh, not, it's not unfamiliar to me. Uh, Dr. Scully, we also want to talk about the O'Brien family farm. On what front? Oh, well, now uh, I'm not at all an expert. In fact, I've just reached out to them and they've just sent me back a beautiful email because I was trying to, um, I've been trying to uh, uh, reconnect with um, um, a lot of things Irish related here. And um, I had, uh, I had had, I just shared a story with them that um, Many years ago, uh, friends of mine, very good friends of mine, were coming from Ireland. And at the time, you know, I was working at the health sciences. And uh, anyway, my friend's coming. Her husband is a thatcher, meaning, you know, he, roo- he makes the roofs for the thatch cottages. And he's from a farming community. And uh, he really wanted to visit a farm. And I, at the time, didn't know anything about farming here. And I'm not quite sure who helped me with this. Um, I think John Mannion might have been uh, somebody who told us about this. I'm not really, I can't remember, but we heard about uh, the O'Briens and uh, Ali. I'm not sure if there were two brothers, but Ali was certainly alive. And what was amazing was we, we, we went up there and my friend uh, Tomas, who's from uh, Mealick in County Clare uh, he popped out and Ali was there and of course they chatted away in Irish but what was really amazing to me was that um, um, it was summertime I guess it was hay there and Ali was about to do some scything and uh, Tomas hopped out and they just started si- and started scything <laughs> and chatting in Irish it was just like a very amazing thing it was like as if you i don't know went to another world it was beautiful yeah so you mean scything in using a scythe to take the hay was that yes. okay fair enough yeah, I've, I've, I've no idea how to use like you wouldn't want me scything your hay <laughs> oh, i think i can swing it but it's an awful arduous way to take the hay in uh dr scully when you're talking about interest in uh the irish language and irish roots here and the like there's some terrific contacts i don't know if you know whether it be through the benevolent irish society but notables like michael boyle for instance and yes. some connections you can make up on the southern shore which is really the home of the Irish community in this province. You know, we talk about this province being very Irish, when in fact the vast majority of immigrants from Europe came from England uh, that settled here. So there are some pockets of notable Irish people. I'll throw Michael Boyle and some folks up the shore that you might be able to connect with as well. Oh, yes. No, I, I uh, Patty, my, um, my late father, uh, we moved here in 97, 
And after a few years, I had a phone call, and a lady named Irene phoned me, and she asked my permission to bring my father to a time. I didn't know what the time was, and my father at the time was back in Dublin, so I told her to phone back in a week. Anyway, he did, she did, and uh, my father went to the time, and um, anyway, things moved along from there. So my uh, father married uh, a lady from the southern shore at age 84, you know. Interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, it is curious to me that we we do have some of the biggest St. Patrick's Day parties here in this province, maybe outside of Boston, Chicago, New York. And in Ireland, they don't even celebrate it quite the way we do, which is also fascinating. And I guess it's St. Patrick's Week uh, these days here. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Dr. Scully, before I take a couple more calls before the well, newscast? Um yeah, no, I'm very interested, as you know, in the environment. I'm reading Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation by Paul Hawken, and uh, uh, he's got uh, a great chapter on um, uh, building and heating and cooling and retrofits, and the data is that if we were to spend the money we're considering spending on new uh, fossil fuel projects, which, of course, uh, is against the advice of the Sixth International Panel on Climate Change against the uh, request of the Ukrainians and now, of course, against the international moratorium on further fossil fuel investment. If we spent the money retrofitting and putting in heat pumps, uh, we would employ lots of people with jobs and uh, we could try to use all that great energy from, uh, from Muskrat Falls. And uh, so right now the uh, Irish government has Gale Culture, which is uh, an attempt to have more people learning and speaking Irish, but they also have a professional certificate in uh, sustainability, which will be uh, available bilingually in English and Irish. So... Um, um, I think there's a lot of benefit in, uh, I've been trying to study Miman and behind in that as well, but the point is that these ancient languages help to connect us with a totally different way of being uh, and knowing uh, the land and loving the land and loving place. And of course, Newfoundlanders and Labradors have that great love of place. But traditionally, it also was a great love of all the living creatures in the place and a great sense of them. So, for example, in the Irish language, the word for a wolf is Matnatira, which is the son of the land. Um, and um, my Mima is very, very uh, in need of a lot of work. But, you know, um, uh, for example, I was fascinated that the Mima word for a... Um, an apple is a French cranberry, right? So, uh, so I think that uh, um, keeping, uh, well, I think uh, the Mima Revival uh, uh, project here is hugely important and uh, wonderful. And I think that there's many benefits to all of us for, le for learning and practicing these uh, beautiful languages. And they help to connect us with um, our roots as human beings and our connections to the land and the earth and uh, our love of all these things. Yeah. Appreciate your time, Dr. Scully. Thank you. Thank you. Have Take care. Day. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, another one for the news. Line number two. Mary, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. This is uh, Mary from Gander. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Um, I just saw on your on the website uh, that came up on uh, VOCM website that came up at nine forty nine that there's two toll free numbers uh, set up. There are. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I didn't. Do you want me to give them out now or? I just saw them go by on Minister Hogan's timeline. Oh, is this email from you, Mary? It is. It is yes. <laughs> I just see it here now. You can go ahead and give them out. Okay, so it's uh, Provincial Emergency Operations Centre phone line is open for inquiries regarding supplies, transportation, and general questions. So that number is one eight three three eight four five zero seven seven five, and that's open from eight a.m. to eight p.m. And the second one is the central health phone line can be used for all health-related matters. That number is one eight three three nine six zero four five seven one, And that number is also from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. They're very helpful. I will keep them on hand because oftentimes folks won't have a pen in their hand or a pencil and a piece of paper or they're driving. So if you need any of those questions answered regarding some of the preparedness uh, going on in Central, because it's ongoing, so there's two numbers. One feels inquiries regarding the forest fires themselves, and that's one 833 845 from 8 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock in the evening. And the others are regarding transportation, general questions, supplies, and that's a different one. It's 833-960-4571, once again from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. I appreciate the time and the information, Mary. Oh, you're welcome, Patty. Take good care. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okay, another one quick before the news. Fine. Let's go to line number three. Judy, you're on the air. Morning, Teddy. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. You're having a busy day. We are. I, uh, yeah, I just wanted to call and wish a very special person, my Aunt Violet, a happy 90th birthday. And she's listening to the program right now on her Google Play every morning. She says, hey, Google, play VOCM. Like you would. Yeah, when you're 90. (laughs) So thank you for, I know you don't do birthdays, but I uh, just wanted to make sure that she uh, heard this today. We're happy to do it. Why not? Yeah, so so Violet, did you want to speak to Patty? Patty (laughs) Dale. No. (laughs) Uh, Not right now. Not right now. Would you say a special happy birthday and hello to Violet for me? I will, Patty. Okay, too. Okay. okay. Have a great day. You too. I wasn't expecting that. That's okay. okay. Don't worry about Thanks that. Thanks for that. Okay. Appreciate it. Bye okay. bye. Bye. <laughs> uh, let's take a break from the newscast and still have plenty of time to speak with you right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament, elected in Scarborough Southwest. He's also the Minister of Emergency Preparedness. That's Bill Blair. Minister Blair, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So the federal government has offered assistance fighting the wildfires, the forest fires here, especially in Central, the two big ones that thankfully have not merged. What does federal assistance look like? 
Well, federal assistance looks like we, we actually integrate very closely with, uh, with the Provincial Emergency Operations Centre. We've got our personnel in there from the Canadian Armed Forces. We've also included the Canadian uh, Coast Guard services that's providing some helicopter services. But we really work under the leadership of, of the province on this. And, and I had a conversation this morning with the Premier. I've, I've been speaking through the weekend with Minister uh, Hogan and, and, of course, my colleague Seamus O'Regan through the weekend as well making sure that there's good coordination between whatever federal resources can be brought to bear to assist the province in their, in their response. We're, we're moving as quickly as possible to make sure that that happens. How does your department view emergency preparedness versus what is also required is help after the fact? So after a fire starts, after a flood has taken place, after a drought has been persistent throughout the growing season, what kind of things are you doing on the preparedness level versus support after we need the federal government's uh, intervention? Yeah, it's a very important question because we know that every dollar we spend on, on prevention is, is worth $10 in recovery. But our, our first priority when there's, when there's an event like this is to make sure that people are safe, that we, that we keep people out of harm's way, that we provide as much support to the province as possible to get that fire under control. Uh, the weather, by the way, is, is very you know, promising. I, hopefully things are, are, are getting a little bit better. The situation on the weekend was, was quite dire, to be quite frank, and, but, but I think that there's some hope, reason for hope going forward. But we also know that, that in recovery, you know, sometimes you know, critical infrastructure can be damaged, our highways and other critical infrastructure, communities can be, can be harmed, you know, municipalities can, can face some hard, harsh uh, consequences of these types of weather-related events. And so we have a disaster financial assistance arrangement where we work very closely with the province in order to provide you know, financial support for that recovery. But there, and there's also really important work that goes on with, with Parks Canada and working with the provincial authorities in, in order to make sure that we, we, you know, we, we make sure the communities are much more resilient to these types of events. You know, this is the worst fire season that we've seen in Newfoundland in, in over 60 years. And, and I think that's, that, that is a, a, a cause you know, for, for us to be aware that you know, we're seeing an increase in frequency and the severity of these types of climate-related events and that it does make it necessary for us not only to respond quickly and appropriately to help people out when, when these things happen, but to make sure that we're better prepared in the future. Yeah, it's the worst wildfire season since 1961 on the island, but in Labrador we had quite a significant fire season. I think 2017 is the date that I'm going to put out there. I mentioned floods and fires and drought, and whether it be landslides, rock slides, avalanches, all these things that fall into the world of emergencies, but also sticking with Labrador. Emergencies also occur on the water and for search and rescue on land. Labrador is woefully underserved with Coast Guard presence and for search and rescue capacity. Not even a fast uh, fast rescue craft in Labrador. Your attention to emergency preparedness has to include those types of human resources and infrastructure to be in place, especially in places like Labrador with the merciless North Atlantic and of course the expansive land that has to be covered by those organizations. And Patty, I don't disagree with you at all. I think I think we've got to make sure that we've got the equipment that we need. We are making significant investments in in dealing with things like floods and fires. You know, we, we've we've put a, a lot of money into to training new firefighters, for example. A lot of money into new firefighting equipment that'll serve communities right across the country. And there's actually a very good collaboration that goes on between you know each of the provincial jurisdictions as well. But but we we do know that that there is a need to make sure that we invest in in, in being better prepared for these types of weather-related events because we are seeing the more 
more frequently and we are seeing them more, more severely. And, and so, you know, it, it takes time to, to build up those resources, as, as you know, but the Canadian uh, Coast Guard has stepped up. They, they, they brought their helicopters to bear in, and are assisting with movement of supplies and people right now. And, and we'll, conti- we'll continue to make sure that they've got what they need to, to, to serve the people that need those services so desperately sometimes. Yeah, weather and climate could also have an impact, obviously, when people are out on the water. And we hear these stories, unfortunately, here, two young fishermen from Mary's Harbor lost. And there's a delay in getting these searches underway because we don't have the capacity. So you talk about monies for preparation for fires and floods and the like. How about investing directly in search and rescue in Labrador? Is there money coming towards that? Because without those services, every minute is of the essence. And, and, Patty, we're making pretty significant investments in our government and in, in increasing the capacity of the Canadian Coast Guard. Um, those, the, and, again, the acquisition and the building of those ships and their, and their, and their acquisition takes time. But we, we are working hard to make sure that those, those, those essential services, like the Canadian Coast Guard, have the equipment that they need and are able to provide the services that, that are necessary. And, and, and I'm very well aware of some of those tragic events where fishermen have been, have been lost um, and, 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 and how important it is to those families. We understand that, and, and we'll do everything we can to respond as quickly and as effectively as possible. Maybe a little bit outside your purview as the Minister for Mercy Preparedness, but in a past life in law enforcement, in a past life as a Minister for Public Safety, the government between uh, Minister Mendocino and Minister Jolie, there's now going to be a handgun importation ban. So I guess they have the ability to revoke or reject any permits for the importation. As former law enforcement in particular, the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs will say that the handgun crime in this country is to blame on the importation of illegal guns across the Canadian-American border. For my priority, and I'm a layperson, the outside looking in. I invest and I focus on the border. Then we talk about the legal ownership of guns in the country. Then we talk about weapons belonging on a ban. For your druther, sir, where's the priority? The border, the ban list, or the handgun in the import ban that has now been imposed without parliamentary approval? Well, for me, good gun control and and better protections at our border go hand in hand. And what we've seen is an increase in, in gun crime in our country but we also live right next door to the largest handgun arsenal in the world in the United States. And so we do see the flow of, of those firearms that are readily available. And we see the consequences, Patty, of, of, of readily accessible guns and, and the greater access people have to guns. Um, it, it can create a very dangerous situation because the presence of a gun in a dangerous situation can make it deadly. And so we are doing what we believe is necessary to keep guns out of the hands of people and circumstances that where they commit the crime. Not everybody who, who goes out and acquires a, a firearm is a criminal, but the circumstances can change. And, and when there's a domestic violence situation or somebody might be suicidal, the, the situation in those situations where there, there's a firearm present, those situations can be deadly. And, and so in Canada, we have a strong history and tradition of, of, of effective gun control, much more, much better than in the United States. And, and, and I know that there are a lot of concerns about the accessibility of handguns. We're not banning, uh, banning those handguns, but we're going to make it a lot more difficult for, for people to, to acquire them um, uh, through, through the measures that we're taking and through the legislation that we brought forward. And, and, and I think that that's, that that's appropriate. You know, that does not, by the way, in any way interfere with people's abilities to, to, to hunt and engage in sports shooting. You know, but, but frankly, handguns aren't for hunting. 
you know, that, and, and we know that in many circumstances, because of concealability, they can be deadly in the wrong hands. And so it is incumbent upon us to do everything we can to keep gun, those guns out of the hands of people that could do harm with them. Without getting into tactical procedures, what enhancements have been made at the border, though, to identify, to confiscate, to make arrests for those who are bringing in the guns and those who are sending the guns over the border? Just give us a snapshot over the last two years, because the ban list is one thing and the, the, uh, the, the announcement last week regarding handguns is another. But the free flow of guns on the border, give us an idea exactly what enhancements have been made in that front in the last two, three years. Yeah, sure, Patty. And, and, you know, several years ago, um, a, a previous government cut the, the CBSA, our border service officers, they, they cut hundreds of millions of dollars and, and, and people out of, out, of, out of that in order to save money. And, and, and although I think we should always be careful with, with spending money, I think that was a, that was a false economy. And, and so what we've been doing is we've been rebuilding CBSA capacity, and we've invested very significantly, hundreds of millions of dollars into more officers and better equipment, better intelligence gathering, and better coordination between our law enforcement officials and our border officers. And what we've seen just over the past year, Patty, is, it, is, is nearly doubling of the number of firearms that CBSA is interdicting at our borders. And, and it's because, you know, it, it's, it's very easy to smuggle a firearm into, into this country, and so we, we just can't have a sort of goal-line defense at the border. There has to be criminal investigations into the criminal organizations responsible for, for bringing those guns from the United States into Canada. And we've been investing very significantly in the RCMP, in local law enforcement, and in the border service officers to enable them to do their job. And they are out there working hard for us, but unfortunately there's still an awful lot of people who are quite willing to, to go down to the United States, acquire a handgun relatively inexpensively, smuggle it across the border, and those guns, when they come into this country in an unregulated way, can cause terrible harm. And, and that's why in our latest legislation, we are proposing to, to significantly increase the maximum penalty for, for trafficking in firearms so, so that the police efforts to interdict those guns are made effective by holding to account and that there be real consequences for people to break those laws and bring those guns into our country. Appreciate your time this morning, Minister Blair. Of course, Patty. Have a good day. Same to you. Bye-bye. That's Bill Blair. He's the Liberal member for Scarborough Southwest. The minister, or pardon me, he's the minister responsible for emergency preparedness. Oh, I should have asked him this one. It might have been a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But Minister Blair is also the president of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada. I forgot about that. And I'm just wondering, in that role... Can he maybe get some of the people producing maps in the province of Quebec where the Canada's Privy Council settled in 1927, where Labrador belongs on the map, what color it should be, and it's part of this province, not our neighbors to the west in Quebec. And, of course, that's maybe a little bit more tongue-in-cheek than anything else, but there you go. Let's take a break. Final one of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Bill, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing? Good, good boy. Good, good. Uh, talk about some infrastructure now that's being done on Bay Bulls Road. Uh, they never put no provisions in place for the garbage to be picked up. I'm going on myself and my neighbors on this road in this certain area between Conway's Lane and Valley View and not have their garbage picked up in five to six weeks. Uh, we, uh, I call uh, a guy called me from the city. Said sorry uh, about the inconvenience. Uh, can you drag your garbage down to Conley's Lane? I got three garbage cans. I'm not dragging them down over over a hill across my neighbor's lawn and down on Conley's Lane. You should have had some provision in place. Danny Breen and him should have had something in place to pick up the garbage. My neighbor called. And uh, they told her, she said she was going to put hers across the road because she was closer to Valley View for them to pick it up the next day. Would she be charged if her garbage can was stolen? Oh, yes, she said. 
like what kind of what what kind of government we got running this city? Like uh, we know the infrastructure got to be done, but there got should have been something put in place for the garbage to be picked up. Or like if we lose the garbage can, we got to pay for them. That's that was the rules that was put out when you first got these garbage cans, right? Okay, so you're on Babel's Road, which is still inside the the borders of the city of St. John's. Yes. Okay. So why exactly is the garbage not being picked up? Maybe I missed that at the beginning of the call. Well, because their infrastructure, the, the garbage truck can't, uh, well, couldn't get up along there for a while. They only could get up one side of the road because they only had one lane open. Uh, the, now they can get up by my driveway and up to my ne- neighbors that's past me and turn up and go up, but they're still not picking up the garbage, right? And uh, it's been six weeks. I'm soon going to take it to City Hall or down to Dan- Danny Breen's own home and dump it on his driveway because it's getting ridiculous. Like, I try to take stuff into work in my car and dump it in my in the dumpster at work, but I'm not putting that stinky stuff in my car. You understand? <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't want my garbage in my car either. So, yeah, yeah I do. Right? And so, like, why don't why don't they put in a plan or an emphasis uh, to pick up garbage when stuff is this, like this is going on? I have elderly people that live across the road that they're digging up over there also. It's going to, their garbage is not going to be able to be picked up. What are they supposed to do? Dra- try to a seventy-something-year-old woman try to drag garbage down the road or something? No, right? That's not you the know? answer. No, it's not the answer. Like it's time, but like if you're going doing this, we know this infrastructure needs to be done. All new water lines, sewer lines, we're thankful for it. But put something in place that you can help the people to get their garbage picked up and uh, uh, all the time instead of having to wait. They're still going to go on till November in my area. So like, what am I supposed to do with my garbage till November, right? I don't know, and I I'll admit I'm still a little bit confused what the infrastructure issue is. But hey, uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, well, when they got the road dug up, Patty, they're down below my driveway. Okay, they got to dig down, put in the water lines and the sewer lines. Yeah. And the thing is, they gave me back my driveway and my neighbor her driveway and my other neighbor his driveway. But the garbage truck still won't come along there and pick up our garbage. Yeah, I'll see if I can get a reaction from the city, give you some idea as to exactly when it's going to happen or other provisions versus you and your elderly neighbors dragging garbage all over the place for somewhere convenient for them. Let me see what I can find out. They usually answer us pretty quick. Well, I appreciate that, Patty. Thank you very much. You have a great day, no? Same to you. All the best. Okay. Bye. Bye, Bill. Yeah, we'll see if we can get an answer because it's, look, six weeks without garbage pickup is a big deal. Uh, you're paying for the service. And the solution is not dragging your garbage around if you are a regular Joe and or especially for you know, talk about his elderly neighbor. What are they going to do about it? All right, Xavier, you got her queued up. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's... Uh, so yesterday, you know, someone, there was a couple of people, a little bit cross with me that I didn't play a selection this morning for the tune at the end of the preamble from Olivia Newton-John. And yesterday we were told that she died at the age of 73. So Ozzy sold over 100 million records, maybe better known for some of the movie roles, whether it be, of course, notably in Greece and Xanadu and others, but she was just an extraordinary singer. And one of the songs just happens to be from Greece, which, of course, you know I love, really does show off the incredible voice that Olivia Newton-John did, dead at the age of 73. I think she had a long fight with uh, cancer. But anyway, it's a, a sad loss in the world of music and cinematography. So we'll go out with the tune, and when we come back, we'll be looking forward to speaking with you tomorrow morning when we do indeed pick up this conversation on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.